Today, as we gather around God's word in scripture, we continue our sermon series on the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And today, I wonder, in the spirit of this text, if you have ever been stopped in your tracks, if you have ever experienced the answer no, when you might have hoped that the answer might have been yes, and if you have ever ended up somewhere unexpected. This, I believe, is the experience of Paul and Timothy and the disciples in today's story from the book of Acts. And in your bulletins, you should have, at least most of you should have received a map in order to follow along today. Today's story is a journey story, a travel narrative in which Paul is going from here to there with many stops along the way. And so I think the gift of this story might unfold if you have it visually along with you. So let us listen for God's word in this story from the book of Acts. They, Paul and Timothy and the disciples, went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come opposite of Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but The Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision. There stood a man of Macedonia, pleading with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, we immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. We set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Samothrace, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate by the river where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. And a certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyratia and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart and listened eagerly to what was being said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she, prevailed upon, and she prevailed upon us. May God bless the hearing of this, God's holy word. Please pray with me. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So many places, yes, so many travels. This book of Acts is a geographer's dream come true, or maybe a nightmare if you are directionally challenged. So today, with the aid of a map, geography matters. So let us begin to make peace with it. First of all, much of scripture is located someplace instead of no place. This is not just happenstance. Our story, the story of God, is 
an embodied story. It is a rooted story in a particular place, in a particular time, with a particular people. Each place in Scripture can serve to remind us this, that this story belongs not just to us, but to an ancient people. And, in fact, many diverse ancient people whose lives were just as complicated and real as our own, full of joy and sorrow and surprises. Our own faith, geography reminds us, does not come out of nowhere, arriving, dropping out of nowhere like an unmarked package in the mail. Our faith has roots. It has a context and a history. And so, too, our faith has a geography. Our faith is participatory. There is a way to do faith instead of just have faith. And so the spiritual geography of our lives and the spiritual geography of Scripture give testimony to this active, living faith of those who have gone before us. Second, the book of Acts is a travel narrative, a story that should come with a map. And it's not for geographical reasons that it should come with a map. It's instead for theological reasons. Acts begins where the Gospel of Luke leaves off, with Jesus' final message to the disciples. Be my witnesses, Jesus says to them. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, this story, I'm guessing, would be a little bit disappointing if the disciples went around Jerusalem a little bit and then tucked in for a long winter's nap. If the disciples didn't go into the wild blue yonder, as the Air Force might say, if they didn't go to infinity and beyond, as Buzz Lightyear would say, then the author of Acts and Luke would have very little to report at this point. But as luck would have it, luck or faith or wisdom or maybe a nudging from God, Jesus' disciples do go, and they are witnesses to this wild story of freedom and forgiveness. And they go to the very ends of the earth. And so, we need a map. But until we know just a little bit about these cities and regions, that are named in this story, these unfamiliar place names will be unremarkable to us. And unless you've really studied up on your biblical geography as of late, or possibly if you grew up in modern-day Turkey, these places like Phrygia and Bithynia will be just as vague as Pentecost's Pontus and Pamphylia. Yes? Now, but we might understand if the geography were closer to our own. We might understand if, having been prevented from going up the East Coast, Paul traveled from New York City towards Pennsylvania and Ohio. We might understand if Paul traveled up then to Detroit and through Ann Arbor and headed towards Holland, skirting the coast of Lake Michigan. We might understand if being prevented by Jesus' spirit from going south to Indiana and beyond, Paul had to wait. And waiting in Holland, Paul, that night, has a dream about traveling to Chicago. And we might understand if the next morning following that dream, 
Paul boarded a sailboat in Holland, Michigan, and sailed past Gary, Indiana, where, of course, he was prevented from going, and towards Chicago. We might understand if, passing by the towering cityscape that is downtown Chicago, Paul went just a little bit farther and docked his boat at Wilmette Harbor. And we might understand if, on a Sunday morning, instead of heading south towards Chicago's city center, Paul walked north on Sheridan Road, seeking a place of prayer. We might understand. We might not even be surprised if Paul found a gathering of women in our quaint chapel, worshiping God there. And we might not, we might understand if there, or rather here, Paul came across a businesswoman, Lydia, a seller of royal cloth, a purple cloth to be exact, and a worshiper of God. And we might understand if after all of that, God opened the heart of that businesswoman, Lydia, who then had her entire household baptized and offered hospitality to Paul and his disciples after traveling with them, a little post-church lunch. Then we might understand. But that's not the way the story goes, is it? There is no post-church lunch here. Instead, Paul is on his way through Phrygia and Galatia, smack dab in the middle of modern Turkey. And he tries to go west. He tries to go to Asia. Not Asia like what we think of China or Japan or India, but what the Greek-speaking people would have called Asia. Coastal towns like Mysia and Troas and Lydia, along the west coast of what is now Turkey. Paul tries to go in this direction, but the Holy Spirit will not allow him. So Paul tries to go the other way instead. He starts out northwest towards Bithynia, a gorgeous forested mountain region along the Black Sea in what is now northern Turkey. But they are blocked again. The spirit of Jesus will not let them go. They can't go southwest. They can't go northeast. They can't go left. They can't go right. They can't go up or down. It reads like a cartoon. Paul is blocked in every direction. You can practically see Bugs Bunny running around trying to go this way and that. But there are blocks in his way. Paul has had two answers from God on his travels. No and no. What will it take for Paul to hear yes from God? So Paul heads up past Mysia towards this port city of Troas, where at least he might be able to board a boat and head in God knows what direction. And Troas is this port city, like I said, and it's adjacent to and kind of synonymous with the ancient city of, Tro of Troy, ancient even in Paul's day. And it has a reputation of being a place where great adventures begin, kind of akin to uh, Bilbo or Frodo beginning their adventure in the Shrier, or Harry Potter and Hermione beginning at platform nine and three corners, or Anakin or Luke starting at Tatooine. We know if we are the people who are reading this text that Troas is a place to begin an adventure. And 
we can stop here and ponder the poetry of God's no. We can remember the times in our own lives, yes, where God would not let us go left or right, but only straight ahead to a place where adventures are launched. No is a frustrating place. Geographically, no is no man's land, a wilderness, a wasteland with no way out. I've been there. You've been there. No means waiting. No means wondering what could possibly happen next. No means a break from the routine of going and going and going. No means a pause to wait and wait and wait. But possibly not a peaceful waiting, but an agonizing waiting. Paul could not go north or south. He could not go east or west. He could only head in the direction of this launching point and wait more information. And so finally, that night in Troas, Paul has a dream. And we are thankful because finally, this story has a plot instead of just places on a map. In Paul's dream, a man from Macedonia is crying out, help us. Fine, Paul's dream doesn't turn out to be so great. We have to find another place on the map. But seeing Macedonia on our map, we sigh with relief and, relief and realize that we shouldn't really be super surprised that Paul is having visions of Macedonia. It would be like having visions of Chicago while being docked in Holland, Michigan. In part, it is an obvious choice. I suppose, yes, Paul could have turned around and gone the way he had come, or he could have sailed off into the far reaches of the Mediterranean Sea, going where no man has gone before. But if you are in Troas, this place from which adventures are launched, why skip by the Macedonians? Why not go there first before going to the farther reaches, the uttermost parts of the earth? And so they go. They stop over at Samothrace, which I mention only because it sounds amazing, and I think we should all go there. It is this unforgettable volcanic island with a mile-high mountain jutting out towards the sky. And so they rest there for one night, and then the next morning they set sail for Neapolis, and they dock their boat, and they head out on foot towards Philippi, the very easternmost city that is still officially within the district of Macedonia. And so it goes, they arrive. God having said yet no to every other direction of travel, God finally says yes to Macedonia. And it is here in God's yes that our story really begins. A few days later, we meet Lydia. Paul and his disciples, despite their calling to Macedonia, that morning head outside the walls of a Macedonian city to find a place of prayer. Have you ever had this kind of experience when you've been told no several times and finally a yes comes? Even that yes kind of makes you shy and hesitant, makes you tiptoe just a little bit, maybe to find a place of prayer, but maybe you kind of run away just a little bit to have a private freak out before you finally roll up your sleeves. Because now that you've had this yes, can it really be trusted? But Paul does that. He seeks, he seeks a place of prayer just outside the walls 
of Macedonia. He rolls up his sleeves and he gets down to business and he heads towards a place of prayer. And yet, even during your Sabbath day walk, even during this semi-protest heading in the opposite direction of God's call, God's no becomes a yes right before your eyes. God's yes is no longer just a vision of a nondescript Macedonian man crying for help. God's yes is now, for Paul, embodied in the reality of Lydia. Lydia, who is in every way not who we might expect. Lydia is, in God's confuddling way, not a Macedonian, and she is most certainly not a Macedonian man. She's already a person of faith. She is seemingly in no need of help. She is independent and wealthy and in charge of her own household, and she is prayerful and open to God's change of heart. Lydia is a seller of purple cloth, the reason that I invited you all to wear purple with us today, and from the purple cloth-making region of the ancient Near East, a town called Thyratia in the district of Lydia. We'll try that again, whatever way it comes out. In the district of Lydia, her namesake. Lydia is from Lydia. Back in the opposite direction, back in the area of Asia that Paul was originally trying to go, but God stopped him. By saying no to Lydia's hometown, God was actually saying yes to Lydia. God's yes and God's no meet in Lydia's very presence. And what of Lydia's purple cloth? Is it her purple cloth? that tells us the truth about God's yes, I think that this purple cloth can give us a clue into God's presence with us. For, on the one hand, in ancient times, purple was reserved for royalty. Julius Caesar, in fact, prohibited anyone but royalty from wearing purple. And much later, later after Lydia's time, Nero prohibited anyone from even selling purple. It was so valuable. Purple was a high luxury, a visible symbol of wealth, more luxurious than even the most luxurious car or watch or technological gadget. It was made from the shell of a hard-to-procure Mediterranean sea snail, and according to folklore around ancient purple dye, it took more than 12,000 sea snails, that's a lot, to extract barely enough dye for one purple toga. So Lydia would have been a very wealthy businesswoman, unique in and of itself in her day, a woman of such wealth and class that she did not need to be accompanied by a man. And she would have been accustomed to dealing with the richest of the rich and powerful, the kings and queens of her day. And yet, being that close to power and wealth did not puff up her pride. Lydia was a woman of faith even before Paul met her. On the Sabbath day, there she was, at the riverside, at the humble place of prayer, not some city center, show-offy house of worship, but at the riverside among women of faith, praising God. Yet, here's the rub. Here's where Lydia's purple cloth, I believe, holds the power of God's yes as well as the power of God's no. Purple cloth is not just a symbol of wealth and royalty. Yes, we use purple cloth here at Kenilworth Union Church during the season of Advent, signaling that we are awaiting Christmas, that we are awaiting the birth 
of the Christ child, our humble manger-born, but nonetheless royal king of kings. But alternatively, we hang our purple cloth during the season of Lent, a season of repentance that prepares us for the journey that Jesus takes into Jerusalem towards his death. Purple is a color of mourning and sorrow. Here at the riverside, it may not be Lydia's faith that we are celebrating. Yes, God opens Lydia's heart. Yes, Lydia and her whole household are baptized. Yes, Lydia invites the disciples in, essentially planting the very first house in the church, the first house church in Philippi, the place to which Paul later writes the letter to the Philippians. But today, I think that we are celebrating Paul's heart. In his account, in Paul's encounter with Lydia, the purveyor of Purple Heart, we see Paul standing in this dual reality of God's no and God's yes. In this story, we are more like Paul on a journey into the unknown after hearing God's no and wondering what might come of God's new yes. Lydia's purple cloth gives us a glimpse of these dual realities of no and yes, the royal dignity and promise of purple held up alongside the melancholy, the sorrow of purple. When God gives us a no, and we do get no as an answer, we experience loss. We, what we hoped for cannot be. We grieve, and often God's no brings true and deep heartbreak. The misery of no can be long-lasting. But when God says no, what is the other vision that God might have for us? Is there not some new place to which God might have us go? Is there not some new future, a future with dignity and hope to which God might be calling us? In Lydia, with her purple cloth and her open heart, we catch a glimpse of God, God who holds us both in the no and in the yes, in the sorrow and in the joy. God holds us in the purple grief of no and in the royal purple celebration of yes. It is in this yes and this no that God is with us, and often it is only looking back at the journey that we can see the promises of God's presence at work with us and in us, beside us and beyond us. As we gather in silence now, may God make our geography holy so that we might see God's promises unfold in our midst, so that we might live like Lydia and Paul with river, river bank faith. Let us gather in silence. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.